Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. We're ready for Monday. I don't know why anyone would be asking. Of course we're ready. We're here. We got stuff to tell you. Don't worry about it. We're going to go lot. against the grain for the next couple of hours. Yep. Yeah, oh, there's too much. We're not going to get to it all today. We uh, we are going to try to get to new American sanctions on Russia that look similar to the service sanctions the, uh, the UK imposed last week. We're going to talk about new uh, language out of the G7 that sort of uh, envisions yes. a future phasing out of Russian fossil fuels, but gives no details as to how that. they're going to do that because they cannot decide themselves. Uh, we are going to talk about uh, we're going to talk about American sanctions and their use as a weapon of war and, and this weird blind spot we have around Cuba. Uh, which, you know, according to our new understanding of sanctions as, you know, as a technocratic war, uh, we've been at war for 60 years. Yes. And what have we accomplished? Yeah, we have nothing, literally nothing to show for it. Yeah. So we we are going to get into that. We are going to take a look at the, the Horn of Africa and where things stand politically and uh, in terms of humanitarian issues, because there is a, a you know, crisis affecting uh, tens of millions of people there, a crisis of food insecurity. And I think, you know, a, a historic drought is one catalyst, but mm -hmm. I think there are a lot of other very significant um, political and economic decisions that we should definitely look to as uh, as factors in that pending human catastrophe. Yes. And another story that I, I want to make sure we, we mention, we'll go from serious to frivolous here in our monologue. Um, but on May 5th, so right at the end of last week, the U.S. State Department quietly updated the language on its page about Taiwan. The description used to lead with a reference to the 1979 joint communique that acknowledged the government in Beijing as the sole legal government of China and acknowledged Beijing's one China position. It also said the U.S. does not support Taiwan independence. Of course, it also had a, a lot of language about us maintaining a robust unofficial relationship um, and detailing what that relationship uh, was. And it talked about the U.S. commitment to helping Taiwan maintain its defensive capabilities. Right now, the language about Beijing being the sole legal government in Taiwan or in, in China is gone. Uh, the line about the U.S. does not support Taiwan independence is gone. And the only real political statement is. The United States has a longstanding one China policy, which is guided by guided by the Taiwan Relations Act, the three U.S. China joint communiques and the six assurances. So I think notably, there is nothing about what the one China policy is, right? Mm -hmm. Nothing about Taiwan independence. Uh, and also just a little note to the State Department, you need a copy editor in there because the spaces around where you change the language are all wonky. You've got too oh, many of them. And so, you know, it, maybe this doesn't sound like a huge deal. It seems like it took people a couple of days to take notice, but certainly it is not going to please Beijing. And it introduces a great deal of uncertainty into what had been a pretty clear, if sort of weird, situation where the U.S. very clearly said we're not, we, you know, Beijing is the capital of one China, right. which includes Taiwan. But we will support Taiwan. You know, we're going to maintain a relationship with Taiwan. We're going to maintain the American um, Institute in Taiwan, which is our sort of de facto embassy and handles right. consular affairs and all of this other all of this other business. And now it's just there's almost nothing political in on that page at all. And so here's the other thing. You know, I lived in Taiwan for several years, right? I, I have a lot of affection for 
the people of Taiwan, mm-hmm. and I, I think they should decide their their own fate, you know, on, on that island. Uh, but the people of Taiwan cannot be watching what is happening in Ukraine and thinking, oh, good, this looks this looks yeah, good for us. We can handle this. Right. This looks good for us in some potential showdown with Beijing. Right. I feel like you would have to be a real psychopath to to look at what Ukraine is happening in Ukraine and go and go. This is inspiring. Right. This is this is what I want for my people. And this is the kind of support I want from the United States. I mean, because in Ukraine, again, no military intervention by the U.S. So you don't have any American troops there dying alongside sure. their their Ukrainian brothers and sisters. You just have an endless supply of missiles that seem to be used up pretty quickly. The profits for which come right back to American companies. Right. That's right. And it is Ukrainians and Russians who are doing the dying. And so, you know, I'm sure there are, you know, the, the bloodthirsty uh, in in every government involved in this in this particular triangle. But it is really hard for me to imagine anyone who might actually be caught up in a, a potential hot conflict between China and Taiwan thinking, oh, yeah, OK, great. Like if if this is what we can expect from the United States, fantastic. The time is now. You know, I, I just- mean. I don't understand why that why the time is now to try to provoke uh, the Russians. I'm sorry, the Chinese. No, I don't either. It doesn't make any sense. Like there's no clear path as to what exactly it is the State Department or the White House, for that matter, Mm -hmm. are trying to accomplish on this. I really don't understand it either. And I have a hard time believing, you know, that any but the absolute most sort of rabid uh, elements in Taiwan, even people who who would want independence, want to pay the kind of price mm-hmm. that they are seeing uh, in Ukraine for it, especially right. when it's not going to happen. You know what I mean? Especially when I think the conclusion to any fight like that is foretold. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, a very interesting change there on the State Department page. Um, we also we talked about this possibility on Friday, uh, and it has come to pass that Irish nationalist and Democratic Socialist Party Sinn Féin which calls for Irish unification, won the most Pretty seats incredible. in Northern Ireland's assembly elections and will have the right to the post of first minister. How that works has to do with power sharing and coalition forming processes that I will not pretend to to understand or explain. But it is a remarkable change. And mm-hmm. it does mean that we might see an, a referendum on unification, not necessarily in the very near future, but like. In a future that we can imagine. Yes. Which is, you know, more than you could say a, a few years back, I think. And Sinn Féin's president said as much after the results came in. She said it is time to prepare to ask that question and to prepare yes. for what the answer might be. Public opinion polls going back to the 1980s in England, not necessarily the whole of the UK, but certainly England, Scotland and Wales anyway, um, showed support across party lines for Northern Ireland to join the Republic of Ireland. The, the, most of the Brits just are tired of dealing with this. It's a history of violence and war. It's expensive. They just don't want to deal with it anymore. Mm-hmm. And so I can absolutely see a point in the near future mm-hmm. or in the medium-term future where Northern Ireland becomes a, a part of the Republic of Ireland. Which would make sense. Which would make total sense. It is interesting also that this is being pinned as a as another casualty of Brexit, right? Because Sinn Féin did increase in its popularity, again, according to the reports that I read. But it was the Democratic Unionist Party that really dropped 
-hmm. in popularity. And it is being pointed out that the DUP were champions of a hard Brexit, which alienated some voters. Ironically, uh, it's the DUP that sort of helped birth the Northern Ireland Brexit protocol, which ended up putting a a customs border, a a check between. that, That was the whole point. Yes. And so they didn't want the customs border. So they lost the people who wanted to stay in the EU. And they also managed to alienate some of the most enthusiastic Brexiters because they put this border, however symbolic, between uh, the rest of the UK and Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. So, you know, but yeah, it is very interesting times. Oh, my gosh. I think so, too. I think so, too. Um, A a couple of things that I wanted to, to point out. One, I actually, you know, wrote a note to myself here. Uh, and another one that's just popped up. Well, maybe, maybe there are three. We'll, we'll see if we have time. Oh, there's t- there's a lot. <laughs> so the, the FBI released a heavily redacted report uh, at the end of last week saying that a Saudi national by the name of Omar al-Bayoumi, who we've mentioned a couple of times, who has long been suspected of having had something to do with the 9-11 attacks, or at least that he knew about the, the attacks before they took place, Uh, That he was a paid agent of the Saudi National Intelligence uh, uh, Directorate, GID, General Intelligence Directorate, and that he reported directly to then Saudi ambassador to the United States, Prince Bandar uh, uh, bin Saud, Al Saud, both, or Bandar bin Sultan Al Saud. Everybody knows Bandar, right? Bandar Bush. Bandar Bush, exactly. Turns out Bandar Bush was not the great guy and great friend we all thought he was. What? Imagine that. Bayoumi was arrested two weeks after the 9-11 attacks in the UK, not by the FBI, mm-hmm. because the FBI allowed him to leave the country. So he was arrested in the UK. He was quickly released, saying that they had uh, no real evidence against him, not enough to hold him. Then, a few months later, when then Crown Prince Abdullah Uh, Al Saud, who became king, uh, visited the United States. Uh, Bayoumi shows up as part of the delegation. He's on the plane with with the crown prince and the CIA and the State Department's Office of Diplomatic Security decided we're going to send some people down to Crawford just to watch him and see what he does. Well, when they get down to Crawford, they see somebody else watching him on the other side that turns out to be the FBI. So, look, either the FBI had something on him or they didn't have something on him. If they had something on him, why did they let him go? If they didn't have something on him, then why bother sending anybody over there to surveil him? Mm -hmm. And once they were surveilling him, what was he doing in Crawford? God knows he wasn't sitting in those meetings with President Bush. So if if you had these three different organizations, the CIA, the FBI and the State Department's Office of Diplomatic Security all surveilling this guy, mm-hmm. what did he do? Yeah. Well, we don't know what he did. You know why? Because they blacked it all out in the report. So we still 20 years after the fact, we still don't know what this guy was doing. And I want to know. Why the U.S. government is protecting the Saudis? Yeah, this is my question. What are the reasons for the, for these redactions at this point? Is exactly. the justification only ever national security, or can they just say we don't want to embarrass? No, they can't say 
they can't say it's to save embarrassment. There's actually a, a specific line in the law, in the declassification law, saying that something cannot be classified to save embarrassment of an organization or a person. So they have to be pretending that this is still about yeah. current national See, security and that's the threats. Problem. And that, how is that even, po- you know, especially given that we are partnering with Al Qaeda right now yes. in Syria? That's exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. And and the problem is when they ask for a, a declassification exemption so that they can keep it redacted, blacked out, they don't have to explain why. They just have to say sources and methods, okay. national security. I mean, and then we have to take their word for it. What an ugly, what an ugly business that's still good. I mean, yeah, the, the fact that this remains so mysterious, that there remain so many questions 20 years on is such a shame, right? Yeah. And probably, you know, marks a, when we're looking back on, you know, uh, the, the history of this time period and uh, setting the stage for the kinds of divisions that build up in society that can lead to situations like January 6th or lead to all of this um, uh, uproar over the, the election in 2020 and this idea of all this fragility. I mean, I th- I think that you'll have to also look at 9-11 and, and the way that that was um the way the the quote unquote truth was delivered to the American people mm-hmm. after that uh, tragedy has got to be part of this tapestry, right? That yes. is, that has brought us here, and part of part of really causing people to say, "What are you? What are you yeah. talking about?" I no, mean, no, not to say that absolutely right. People haven't had suspicions about major events in the past. I mean, look at you know, look at J- JFK was still right. with us. People still asking asking questions about that one. But you know. It, 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 of our for our generation, right? It's I think that that is pretty significant. Two other little things, if you don't mind me jumping in real yeah. quickly. Uh, there was a piece in the Washington Post this morning I wanted to highlight mm-hmm. about uh, Russian media in Latin America. Uh, RT and Sputnik are both very active in Spanish across Latin America. Literally millions and millions of followers on on social media networks, and uh, the the post was apoplectic about this. Mm-hmm. Because, oh, my God, they're spreading Russian propaganda on the Russian point of view. They don't tell you about radio and TV, Marti, or Voice of America, Spanish or Portuguese language services. They're fine. But this was terrible. The reason I'm bringing this up is there was one sentence in this article that made me so angry that I actually wrote my very first ever letter to the editor of The Washington Post. It was one sentence saying that. Um, even Venezuelan dictator uh, Nicolas Maduro is using woke language to attract Latin American millennials, and he's doing it with the support of these Russians, and they don't even bother to interview or even acknowledge opposition leader Juan Guaido. Hold on a second. Uh-huh. Wait a minute. That's I feel like that's not our, our official position. Our official position, which the which the Washington Post has been happy to to spout, is that Juan Guaido is the president of Venezuela. Right. That's He's why, not an opposition leader. That's why he got all that money. He got exactly. access to all those funds. Millions of dollars of taxpayer money. Oopsie. To do what? Whoopsie. Just a whoopsie. Just whatever. No, everybody forget about that. Never happened. We uh, never did it. And back to Maduro. And hey, maybe we, well, we might want some oil from you. <laughs> maybe a little bit of oil would be nice. Yeah. One other thing. I can't go a single day without mentioning our friend, Madison Cawthorn. Oh, God, what is he up to? Well, the reason I'm mentioning him today is that Donald Trump was overheard telling 
a friend of his who is a, a Republican politico in Ohio that he is, quote, completely weirded out by Madison Cawthorn. Now, he's endorsed Madison Cawthorn, but I guess Trump watched the same video that we watched last week of Madison Cawthorn naked in bed with a buddy of his and dry humping him. But it's all just a hilarious joke. So not only did Trump say he's completely weirded out, but he described Cawthorn as a hot mess and said that maybe he should find another line of work. Stop making me agree with Donald Trump. I know, right? I don't like it. Stop (laughs) making me do that. We've got other stories, but we're going to have to get to them a little bit later in the show so we can bring on our first guest. So let's take a let's take a quick break here. But we are going to come back. I have some words for the Daily Caller. We're going to tell Elon Musk he can probably calm down. He's going to be (laughs) fine. And a few other stories in here. But for now, we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. The United States has announced additional sanctions on Russia, mirroring sanctions instituted last week by the United Kingdom. These include sanctions on professional services, including accounting, legal services, management consulting, and public relations. The new measures also ban the sale of broadcasting equipment, heavy machinery like bulldozers and industrial engines, and travel bans on 2,600 more people, including Russian military and banking officials. And leaders of the G7 pledged during a virtual meeting on Sunday to phase out Russian oil in what they called, quote, a timely and orderly fashion, unquote. Meanwhile, today is Victory Day in Russia, where the country commemorates its victory over Nazi Germany in World War II. President Putin was expected to formally declare war on Ukraine, uh, but he did not do that. And in Berlin, a bomb was found and diffused at a housing complex for Russian news agency staff. That's a troubling development. We're joined by Denis Rogatyuk. Dennis is a political analyst and researcher based in Latin America. He's written for the Tribune, Green Left Weekly, Telesor, Lynx, The International Viewpoint, and many other publications. Welcome back, Dennis. Hello there, John. Hello, Michelle. It's great to be back on the show, though. So happy to have you, Dennis. I want to begin with these sanctions. These new sanctions are are nearly identical to the sanctions announced last week by the British government. I would expect the European Union to follow suit quickly. Um, what's the what's the import of sanctions on professional services? Are are legal services, accounting, management consulting that important that the Russians have to use foreign firms and, and this is going to somehow hurt them? I reckon, John, the best way to look at it is, say, from a perspective of, of you know, whether, whether it's going to hurt the internal economy or the ex- or the export industry of Russia. Now, it is true. It is true that uh, when it comes to Russia's oil uh, with, with exports, 
to Europe and, and North America. Uh, they have, you know, there is a sort of a large variety of firms that that uh, have been engaged in this, uh, you know, in this industry for a very long uh, for a very long time. So the biggest the biggest accounting uh, corporations that we can think of. Um, uh, Price Price right. uh, Coopers, uh, for example, the banks of J.P. Morgan, Deutsche, uh, Deutsche Bank, especially especially uh, Deutsche Bank, uh, and now the um, uh, which basically often sort of served as intermediaries I see, between the Russian oil companies and and the uh, and their their partners right. in the West. Primarily, uh, what what I see is that this this measure is not directed not so much at Russia, but rather at the um, uh, which have which, which which have been serving sort of as the bridge, as the kind of the uh, uh, you know say financial and the accounting bridge between uh, between Russia, Europe, and the United States. Uh, now these uh, these kind of sanctions to me to me they seem actually quite similar to mm-hmm. the the sanctions uh, that have been placed on financial accounting and Medicaid uh, in Cuba. Uh, I remember one particular uh, one particular case uh, involving um, well in one of the, one of the major French French banks, which was which was actually fined. I think. Uh, Something, something close, something close to uh, two, two billion dollars, because because it was called, say, proce- uh, you know, processing uh, transactions between Europe and Cuba in violation of the, uh, of the of the blockade. And I believe believe that uh, this is the kind of things which United States and Europe are now are now trying to do against uh, tr- trying against Russia. Of course, main, the main difference between uh, sanctions on Cuba and sanctions on Russia. Is that uh, is just the just the huge amount of dependence of that that Europe has on on the um, natural resources, say yes, uh, gas, uh, gas and oil. Mm-hmm. But I believe I, I personally I personally see these these new measures as I would, I would say like uh, really sort of pushing the private sector the European private sector. Dennis, how much of a problem are sanctions on heavy equipment going to be? And the reason I ask is that similar sanctions against Iraq 20 years ago uh, just crippled the the Iraqi economy. But those sanctions were universal. There was literally nobody in the world that was doing business with Iraq. In this case, can't Russia simply manufacture the equipment on its own or purchase the equipment from, from China? That's good. That's a good question, John. I would say I would say that you know Russia has actually in some ways been preparing for this kind of scenario mm. uh, now for for almost eight years. Say so since uh, since the year of fourteen, you know, since since the since the coup in in Ukraine, since the very first sanctions were imposed in Russia, there has been you know you know the Russian government have actually have actually been preparing for for something for a situation such as this. Uh, now there is uh, what, we, what, what we have to remember is that you know that Russia is is also an industrial country. Like this is not like in many uh, say analysis from the Western point of view, they often say that you know Russia is just a, a glorified gas station for the world. Right. But this is not true, as uh, the Russian industry has also been uh, quite notorious manufacturing. I mean, manufacturing heavy machinery and say high high end technology uh, with with regards to say yeah. Uh, say 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, military equipment, pl- uh, planes, uh, yeah, like I said, uh, uh, heavy heavy machinery. Now, of course, a lot of it, a lot of it was, has also been uh, uh, there. The, there was certainly a, a, a decline in this in this production due due to the uh, uh, the so the aftershocks of the new liberal era yes. of the of the nineteen nineties. So a so a, a cooperation. So I can definitely see a cooperation with China uh, taking. Uh, taking place here, the um, I see. Uh, in fact, in fact, in fact, I see. Uh, I believe it's quite possible that we that we're going to see sort of a, like, a, I guess, a gas for tractors sort of uh, deal being being brokered mm-hmm. between mm-hmm. Russia and and China mm-hmm. in order to make up for whatever they whatever they've been losing losing from Europe or the United States. Yeah, that would make sense to me. Dennis, the G7 language on Russian oil was very interesting to me. There's no deadline to phase out Russian oil, and there's no mention that the European Union as an organization or NATO will follow suit. And indeed, while some already have announced that they're going to phase out Russian oil or have stopped buying Russian oil, others like Hungary have said that they simply will not cut off Russian oil. and Turkey. They just won't cut off Russian oil. Uh, there simply isn't enough oil in the marketplace for, for these countries to buy and to make up everything that they would lose if they were to cut off supplies from the Russians. The Saudis have already made very clear that they are not going to increase production. What do you think the fallout will be from a policy like this? The New York Times said today that this could force um, Europe into uh, a very deep recession, something that's that's far worse than what they otherwise uh, may have experienced uh, just because of inflation. Hmm. Well, John, I think uh, th- th- there's a lot to unpack here. So I think I think we can go uh, by steps. Say uh, say first uh, first of say it's the political and administrative uh, bottlenecks and problems associated. With cutting off oil and gas, especially in, in uh, within the European Union, because completely say, uh, uh, imposing a full-on embargo of oil and gas by the is a, it would be an absolute bureaucratic nightmare because that that requires the approval of every single head of state in Europe, which is which is not going to happen because uh, just like uh, like you say, Hungary has said that they will not. That they are completely opposed to any kind of uh, sanctions or, or or an or an import ban, along with along with many other countries. We have to remember that there are some countries in the European Union which rely completely on Russia uh, for gas, uh, gas and oil. So these so these are countries like uh, uh, Romania, Romania, Bulgaria, and Macedonia, um, uh, say mm-hmm. Bosnia. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, here, Finland as well, Finland as well, uh, Greece, like all of the yeah. uh, you know this uh, kind of this uh, Rust Belt of Eastern Eastern European nations, which uh, rely so heavily on them. So even so, even if you know the the governments of those nations uh, were condemning the uh, the actions of Russia, there is they they would still be incapable of of of, of sh- shutting off uh, the Russian gas. Uh, no, because so they're so reliant on it. So mm-hmm. this is the this is the one well, this is the bureaucratic obstacle that you know the the, the European Union uh, would face. What you mentioned uh, about with, with regards to the 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 glut in the in the oil production in the world, this is this is another topic because this is this is where this is where OPEC comes in. Yes, and 
OPEC that's still OPEC plus, which which also in, which the which is the way of uh, for the organization to include Russia in its negotiations as well. Mm-hmm. Now, o, uh, o, o, uh, at, the, at the moment, OPEC have, has effectively uh, uh, agreed to, as I maintain, maintain maintain the current uh, the current the current production not because they specifically lack capacity, but rather because the uh, just because of the, the the amount of revenue that has, that has now been uh, coming in uh, due, due to the you know the oil price uh, once again sort of being once again sort of plateauing around uh, the one hundred dollar one hundred or one hundred five dollar uh, mark, which which of course is it was very good news uh, for Saudi Arabia. Now there is of course one other major major producer of oil in the world who was also a leading member of uh, OPEC, and that's Venezuela. Mm-hmm. Venezuela has uh, has actually stepped in. Has actually been, been uh, shown signs that actually is willing to increase uh, its production, and is and we've seen that also with the with the current negotiations that started between the U.S. government and and the Bolivarian uh, government in order to uh, say discuss the possibility of lifting the embargo partially or partially or fully in order to uh, fulfill fulfill the demand. Of course, uh, I don't expect this to happen uh, overnight, but um, uh, this, uh, you know, the the the, the full effects of sanctions and embargo on the on the Russian oil and gas mm-hmm. are having having extreme extreme uh, around the world. You know, it's it's causing a political crisis within the European Union. It's causing, as we said, a massive recession in yes. the European Union. It's causing a recession. It has caused. It is in the process of causing a recession in, in the United States. But at the same and at the same time, it's. It's creating another commodity boom, uh, which which uh, which the global South, I think, could greatly uh, profit from. Mm-hmm. From, I think from you're right. Case in point being uh, being Venezuela. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, Dennis, Victory Day was supposed to be a pretty big deal today. Uh, more important than than previous uh, Victory Day celebrations or commemorations. The Western media had predicted. For whatever reason, I don't know, that President Putin would declare war on Ukraine today. That never happened. And instead, Putin laid out his reasoning for attacking Ukraine in the first place. What should we take from that decision? Well, uh, the Americans certainly don't seem to understand the Russian mentality, particularly with regards to the uh, 9th of May, which is a day of remembrance, of course, for, uh, for, the, uh, for, those, for, the, for the fallen in the battle. Against fascism, and it's really a celebration of the of the, of the historic memory of that of that uh, great war. It's the day when uh, you know millions of Russians, well, in Russia and around the world, uh, march in what is now called the Immortal uh, Regiment. So they so they all march with the you know with the, with the flags and the pictures of the you know, fathers and grandfathers who fought in the war, fought in the war. So the atmosphere of the day uh, would have would have been one of. Uh, I say cherishing the historic memory of the of the fight against fascism. So, uh, so there's absolutely it, it, there's absolutely no reason at all formally declared war on on a on a nation which uh, uh, at one point at one point also for, also formed part of the fight against uh, fascism. Yeah. Even though the current government in Kiev. Is seems seems to rather rather regards collaboration with Nazis as being 
uh, as being more worthy than the, than the victory against them. Now, the I would say the reasoning behind, uh, say, Putin's speech and the, and the exclamation, I believe that the last few months have created a lot of uncertainty in Russia. Uh, whether, uh, I'd say it's the, you know, the kind of the psychological shock from uh, from, the, the, from the sanctions uh, by United States and the, and the European Union, you know, the um, you know the fact that the fact that Russia did uh, intervened in in Ukraine and intervened in the conflict which was already happening between uh, Ukraine and, and Donbass. And of course, there's just this, um, the, con- the confusion which, have, which has also been created, let's say, by, by the propaganda uh, from, from the West and also at times like a lack of information uh, within Russia. So, so I, I would interpret uh, Putin's speech as a way of, I'll say, a way of reassuring and, uh, uh, say, in some ways, stabilizing Society, because after, we also have to remember that, um, uh, despite the, despite despite everything, despite you know the kind of hardships which the Russians the Russians are facing uh, right now, say because of the economic pressure and also because of uh, say the pressure you know the problems which the conflict is creating, the figure of Putin remains immensely popular. Uh, so uh, so between 80, 80 or nine and ninety percent. A positive view on him, and he's he is always he, throughout his time as president. He always uh, had this kind of a imi- image of the, the sort of the st- strong sta- statesman, and kind of the level of trust in him has remained consistently uh, high. So, uh, so the speech, I would say, I would say, with with, re- with reassurance, is is in some is in some way was what what Russia what Russians. W- Russians were really needing at a time, you know, to to really try to understand where is their place in history uh, right now. And their place in history right now is to uh, continue fighting uh, against fascism mm-hmm. and against uh, the, the supporters of fascism. You know, just as an aside, the, uh, our education in this country is so vastly different than everywhere else in the world when it comes to learning history, especially world history. It wasn't until I was in college that I learned anything about the sacrifice that the Soviet Union made against the Nazis in World War II. What we were taught here in this country was that we practically single-handedly won World War II through the use of the atomic bomb, right? And we never were taught about what the Russians did and the millions of people who died uh, fighting the, the Germans. Anyway, just an aside, Dennis, uh, former Brazilian President Lula announced over the weekend that he would run again for president of that country. In all likelihood, he'll run, of course, against the current president, Jair Bolsonaro. Uh, Bolsonaro worked hard to keep Lula in prison, uh, but now that he's out, he's more popular than ever and he's running. So what do you see happening in that race? What are the issues that are most important to Brazilians? Well, John, uh, it's, it's it's actually quite it's actually quite great uh, that you know we're talking about Lula in Brazil now. Uh, and look, it's in, uh, I read recently that you know Lula, with regards to the conflict in Russia and Ukraine, also says that you know there's blame on both sides. So, the, so you know, like NATO and Ukraine, I say, or, or or other its president are just as equally to to blame for the mm-hmm. conflicts uh, there as well. And this is uh, uh, this is actually quite an interesting um, uh, the angle uh, of 
a good summary also of of his foreign views. So he's he, so he's truly the multipolar uh, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a man who sees the vision of the need for the multipolar uh, world. Uh, and which Lula has already announced that that he wants to see the creation of a new currency in the south. In 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 like. Oh, interesting. What he, what he calls the sur. Yes, as a way of um, as a way of trying to you know dislodge uh, Latin America from their dependence on the United States. Mm. Of course, uh, so many many other policies which which also formed part of his first uh, presidency. So the social, as you know, uh, so the, really kind of the restoration of the of the Brazilian state, like he. It's also important to understand that uh, that the campaign of Lula now is also in some way in some ways different to the campa- to, to to the first campaigns when he won in two thousand and two. Uh, I'm mistaken. The we have, is it, yeah, Lula's uh, current running mate is Geraldo Alquin. Is it? It's uh, it's his old uh, you know a political rival from uh, two thousand six. So this mm-hmm. Geraldo is, is is someone who is considered to be uh, kind of kind of the moral centrist politician in Brazil. So Lula's uh, choice of him as a as a running mate was kind of considered as a way of you know building building like a like a popular front of you know, of different political forces right. to take on uh, Bolsonaro and then and then once want to just dismantle completely. All of the regressive policies which he uh, which he has been implementing in the last several years. So f- so far, this strategy is is bearing fruit, as we've seen in the polls that Lula is consistently leading. Yes, across all polls, including the ones about public conservative um, uh, media, and in the first round, and certainly certainly in in the second round. In the second round, most of the polls give him about a fifteen to twenty percent advantage wow. of of Bolsonaro. Uh, I would say the reason why Lula is has maintained such a high popularity and why he will be the likely winner is I'm saying not just because you know people kind of remember his his years as being, as being the best years of Brazil in decades, yes, um, but also also because it's he, he in many ways he, he is he has become regarded, regarded as kind of the, the the complete opposite of Bolsonaro. Yes. So, and I don't mean. Just in the political outlook, but also uh, what uh, this has to do with what I mentioned before is that Lula has uh, has has the vision of the multipolar world. He has the vision for uh, you know Brazil ending its dependence on the United States. He has a vision of Brazil as you know becoming a leading power again. This this also say strikes a tune with uh, with many Brazilians who after you know after the last few years of you know who basically. You know, towing towing the, the the Washington line in everything. Mm-hmm. I think uh, they are also Brazilians are opening their eyes once again to the possibility of Brazil Brazil uh, becoming an independent state and forming like a, a family of nations across the global south. Right. Okay, we will leave it there. That was the voice of Dennis Rogatiuk. He is a political analyst and researcher based in Latin America. He's written for the Tribune. Green Left Weekly, Telesaur, Links, The International Viewpoint, and many other publications. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a short break and come right back with our next guest. So stay tuned.
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou. And, you know, with with new sanctions every week on Russia and uh, Mm -hmm. pretty... Uh, interesting turn uh, lately, particularly in media, in, in talking about sanctions as as weapons of war and ways to wage economic wars on countries. Uh, it seemed like an interesting time to revisit uh, one of the most longstanding victims, maybe the most longstanding um, yeah. uh, nation subject to American sanctions, and that is Cuba. We're joined by a guest who has just returned from a trip to Cuba. That's Medea Benjamin. She's co-founder of peace group Code Pink, and she's an author and peace activist. Medea, thank you for joining us. Hey, nice to be on with you. So I, I think it is interesting to be having this conversation with you about Cuba on the day that Vox dropped this story headlined, The Biden Experts Waging War Without Weapons. And also saying the Russian sanctions are an unprecedented economic assault, which I might challenge. And I, I think it is interesting after years of being told that sanctions are a diplomatic tool of laser precision that targets bad individuals while leaving the populations of countries unscathed and that they are absolutely not an act of war, uh, but a way of expressing displeasure or setting up incentives. Now, and I think it is not coincidental that I think the Biden administration wants to be seen as uh, basically waging war on Russia without actually shooting at Russia. Uh, Now we are talking about sanctions as an aspect of warfare. Uh, And I also think it is interesting to note that in this very long article about technocratic war and the evolution of the use of sanctions by the U.S., Cuba is not mentioned a single time. And so uh, I want to start our conversation in in this light. You just returned from a country that, in a sense, we have been at war with for decades. Uh, What did you see there? It's very sad to see what uh, Cuba has to go through and how its people are suffering from scarcities of everything uh, that uh, go back 60 years, but were really pushed during the Trump era, mm-hmm. and that Biden hasn't done anything to alleviate. And um, we talked to so many people who said that they had great hopes in Biden, that he was going to go back to the Obama years and things were going to ease up. Uh, and they're so disappointed and they're angry And they don't understand how the American people can allow um, a small group of Cuban-Americans to dictate a policy that hurts 11 million people. Mm -hmm. The other thing, in addition to the sanctions um, they see as part of that, is this ridiculous thing of putting Cuba on a list of state-sponsored terrorists Mm -hmm. that makes the sanctions even uh, more... um, uh, more difficult because uh, the banks don't want to deal with Cuba. The insurance companies don't want to deal with Cuba. The companies in general say it's really just not worth it, uh, even if there are exceptions to things like food and medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they say, you know, why should we bother with the small country um, when we could risk being in the crosshairs of 
the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. And to, to return to, you know, the, the Trump administration and the sort of vicissitudes of, of uh, American policy toward Cuba, minor as they are, you know, Joe Biden was was Barack Obama's vice president and Barack Obama took very significant steps toward normalizing the relationship with Cuba. And so I wonder if they, you know, Cubans and the Cuban government are have a right to feel particularly disappointed with the Biden administration because they might have expected much better. They feel betrayed. Mm-hmm. They look back at the days of Obama and realize that during that time, uh, it was a win-win situation. Uh, the Cuban economy was getting much better. Uh, Cubans were not uh, f- uh, faced with such scarcity. Uh, American tourists were coming down and loving Cuba. Uh, they uh, And it wasn't a um, political hit for the Obama administration. Um, the Cuban Americans basically took it and said, "Well, yeah, you know, we don't like it, but uh, in a way, it does allow us to uh, send money to our families in Cuba. Uh, it improves our uh, relations with uh, a family in Cuba, and maybe we can overthrow the Cuban government by um, slowly imposing capitalism on Cuba." Mm. So, you know, it was seen as a as a win win, and that's why they feel so betrayed and wonder what it is that's keeping Biden uh, on the path of of Trump, and even worse. Um, And, you know, now there were just migration talks with Cuba because Mm -hmm. the U.S. government realizes that their policy of strangling the economy uh, is forcing more people to migrate, and all of a sudden it's an issue for the United States. Do you have any idea what what it is? What like has the Cuban American, you know, the generally speaking quite a conservative and sort of anti anti Cuban government, Cuban American population, gotten a bunch more political clout in the last, uh, you know, during the Trump administration? Or yeah, I, I do wonder what has happened to uh, make you know continuing some of what Obama did. Uh, with regard to normalizing relations with Cuba, it seemed like such a loss for the Biden administration, you know, regardless of its, uh, you know, the morality or, or ethics. I think it comes down to Southern Florida politics. Mm-hmm. The Cubans have gotten very strong here, uh, both the Republican Party Cubans, but Democrats uh, who are either Cuban-Americans, Venezuelan-Americans, Colombian-Americans, uh, and say, you know, we are key to winning back some of these seats that you lost in the last election. Mm. And if you alienate us, uh, not only will you not get those seats back, but Florida will be uh, forever a red state. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the presidential elections, how important Florida is. Mm-hmm. So it really comes down to domestic politics. And, um, you know, that's why the Cubans feel like, you know, why it, would the government... Uh, allow a policy that could bring in money to uh, Western farmers who just had a visit to Cuba and want to do more business there, uh, who would generate a lot of income for even Cuban-Americans who during the Obama times were investing in restaurants and hotels and all kinds of things, um, but instead allow this very narrow uh, political calculation, which which I would say isn't even a good calculation because uh, they uh, gerrymandered the seats. Now they're just not going to get those seats back. Right, right. And you know, yet the policy seems stuck on uh, on that 
you know, narrow political objective. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting, you know, I I agree, U.S. politics, but Florida politics and also U.S. national politics, every once in a while takes a very intent focus on Cuban Americans and Cuban Americans in Florida. And if there is a protest by Cuban Americans against the Cuban government, you know, there was one last year that blocked a highway that gets a lot of attention. But it is wild to me that we can talk about these sanctions on Russia as as quote unquote unprecedented and not even mention the Cuba embargo, right? Like we can on one hand pay attention to any sort of Cuban protest against the government, but just have almost total amnesia about this longstanding uh, embargo. And I I wondered what you what do you think it is about U.S. politics or U.S. media that just allows this oversight to continue? Well, I guess in one way it's been going on for 60 years, but um, you'd think that they would want to cover how it affects Americans who want to go and even travel there. For example, you can't use a credit card in Cuba. Um, You're not allowed to stay at like 90 percent of the hotels in Cuba because the U.S. government has put them on a prohibited Mm. list. Uh, You're not allowed to buy trinkets in a store that is uh, government-owned. What? So it's, it's, it's the, the ridiculousness of it is just um, so petty. belief. <laughs> and you'd think that the, the media could have a field day. Uh, the, the cruise ships are not allowed to dock in Cuba anymore. Um, there's um, uh, just uh, all kinds of uh, software that Cubans are, are not allowed to have access to. They can't use PayPal. They can't use Zoom. They can't use... You know, all kinds of things that you could use in the most repressive countries in the world. And the other thing I think that is important to point out for the media is that they, when they do cover Cuba, they focus on the Cuban government repression of that one day of protest, July 11th, and the trials that have been going on. Uh, when you compare that to what protesters, uh, how they're attacked in countries all over Latin America— uh, to say nothing for um, places around the world where you couldn't even go out in the street to protest because you'd be, you know, you'd be locked up uh, or killed for it, like mm-hmm. U.S. ally countries of Saudi Arabia and Egypt. Mm-hmm. Like that. Uh, so they treat Cuba so differently and act like it's this incredibly repressive police state uh, because it doesn't have the same a ridiculous two-party system that the United States has that doesn't give people a choice um, that, that, you know, that, that makes Cuba this uh, country that should be treated like a pariah state. Yeah, and subject to, you know, what we now are comfortable to call acts of war for years or decades. I, I want to talk about those protests because, uh, you know, some some aspects of some of those protests over the summer appear to have been ginned up by individuals connected to the United States. But it's also very clear that there was genuine frustration being expressed in, in a somewhat uh, spontaneous way. And I wonder, uh, you know, what, what changes the Cuban people were hoping for from their government and what's happened in the months since, you know, has there been a response to some of the demands of those protests? And, you know, did you have a chance to, you know, see see if people felt satisfied that their voices were heard and that maybe there was some motion on some things they wanted? You know, the protests are really about the economy. Mm-hmm. People just don't want to be standing on lines for hours to get some eggs or once a month to get a chicken. Um, and these are structural issues and issues that go back to, uh, the embargo. It's it's in some ways 
uh, the perfect storm that was created between COVID that wiped out tourism for over two years and is still not back to where it was before, um, to the U.S. government cutting off the remittances that are such a key income for countries, poor countries all over the world. Uh, and on top of that, Cuba had this extremely innovative program where it trained doctors and nurses and then sent them out around the world to help people in remote parts of Africa and Latin America and actually made some money from it um, through the uh, UN, the Pan American Health Organization, and the U.S. has cut off most of that uh, income as well and twisted the arms of countries not to invite Cubans in. So all of those major sources of income uh, have been cut off. And so the government just doesn't have the money that it had a couple of years ago mm-hmm. to be uh, putting into uh, buying the, the, the food products that people need, stocking the hospitals with the medicines they need, uh, and um, improving the infrastructure like the transportation system. Mm-hmm. So uh, things are, you know, it's it's hard. Uh, the Cuban government is doing more in terms of going out to the neighborhoods and talking to people and um, making people feel like, yes, their voices have heard, are heard. But when it comes down to it, uh, it's the bread and butter issues. Mm-hmm. And uh, July last year, you know, July is a very hot month. Uh, there were cuts in electricity. Uh, who knows if that'll happen again in July and August. And um, people are frustrated. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it does seem like a a very large, powerful, wealthy neighbor could have a role to play if they genuinely either wanted to uh, alleviate some of these issues that Cubans have been protesting about or, you know, wanted to help Cubans express themselves and sort of exercise their political power more more forcefully. But instead, we continue on this decades long path that we just have all accepted does not do the thing we say we want it to do. It's easy to criticize American foreign policy, but it's especially easy to criticize American policy toward Cuba. Yeah. Most of it is just a a, a logical mystery to me. Yeah. I just don't get it. I mean, what would be if if we were as concerned for the welfare of the Cuban people as mm-hmm. as our government pretends mm-hmm. to be? What you know? What would be a sane policy? And even in you know in the real world, right? We're not not where uh, the U.S. has a socialist government and right. Cuba's our ally. But what what would be a sane policy, Badia? A sane policy would be to treat people at Cuba like uh, a normal country. Have mm-hmm full diplomatic relations, uh, lift these ridiculous restrictions and embargoes and take Cuba off the terrorist list. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it, what, what people say, whether they like or don't like their government in Cuba, you hear the same refrain over and over and over again. Lift the restrictions and then let the Cuban government even either sink or, or, or swim. Mm-hmm. See how much of the problems were because of uh, these U.S. restrictions, and how much are government policies that are just bad policies. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's what everybody wants to see. You know, let us see how our government um, can Im- uh, improve our standard of living if we don't have this blockade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, seems pretty straightforward <laughs> to me, Medea. It is amazing. I was shocked at looking through that that article and seeing absolutely no mention of Cuba. I mean, just an outrage. That was Medea Benjamin of Code Pink. She's a co-founder of that peace group. Medea, always great to talk to you. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me on, Sonny.
John, you know, since we have been uh, watching every move by Elon Musk which, yeah. with such great <laughs> attention, uh, should we we should probably mention that he tweeted last night, uh, if I die under mysterious circumstances, it's been nice yeah. knowing you. Pretty yeah. funny. This was in response to, uh, I guess, the head of Roscosmos, uh-huh. uh, Dmitry, Dmitry Rogozin, sent something to Russian media saying, hey, it looks like these Starlink satellites that Elon Musk sent via USAID and perhaps via the Pentagon to Ukraine uh, were, were delivered to the Azov Battalion in particular. I mean, who knows? Right? Who knows if his description of the path of these Starlink sure. satellites is any more accurate than anybody else's? Um, but he concluded by saying Elon Musk is is involved in supplying fascist forces in Ukraine with military communications equipment, and you'll be held accountable for it as an adult, no matter how much you either translations have been how much you play the fool, how much you like to pretend to be a child or whatever. And so Elon Musk has taken the opportunity to uh, to make everyone fret for his physical safety for a minute. See, I, I wondered when I read that if if he was being serious or if this was just a joke. You never well, know. What do you think? I, I, God knows, right? I mean, he, he probably, maybe know. he was joking and then it is maybe a little bit funny, but uh, I think Elon Musk is in absolutely no danger at all. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come right back. You're listening to us live in DC and on Radio Sputnik. Back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. The Supreme Court's apparent decision to overturn Roe versus Wade continues to knock Ukraine out of the top spot in the news. And Southern governors were on all the Sunday morning talk shows where they panicked pro-choice Americans with some of their predictions. The governor of Tennessee said that the state would outlaw the day after pill, including by mail order. And the governors of Mississippi and Arkansas said that their states would consider outlawing contraceptives. In other news, the Bank of England echoed what we're hearing here in the United States over the weekend when it said that a recession was the only way to tame inflation. And it turns out that the IRS is so far behind in processing income tax refunds that it's having to pay interest to taxpayers who haven't gotten their money yet. We're going to talk about this and more with attorney and former radio host, Brian Wright. Brian, welcome back. Thank you, John. Good to be back. Good to have you, Brian. Brian, let's start with uh, with the law. You're an attorney. Uh, let's talk a minute about Roe v. Wade and this apparent uh, decision. There was a piece in the Washington Post this morning saying that Chief Justice John Roberts is a very influential figure behind the scenes at the court, as you might assume, and that we don't actually know yet what his position on the Alito draft is because he hasn't written anything yet and hasn't told anybody where he stands. The implication was that Roberts could talk one of the three Trump appointees into switching sides and that in the end, the court would actually uphold Roe and Casey while still allowing the restrictions that the Southern states wanted. The Democrats say that that's all ridiculous, that the case is over, 
that they're going to turn to politics now rather than the courts? What do you think? Well, it's hard to say that the case is over because the opinion hasn't yet been put. Right. It's been written out, and it appears that there is uh, the, the majority is going against keeping Roe v. Wade in place. But uh, making a statement that it's ridiculous, I think, in itself is ridiculous because anything can happen. Mm-hmm. But uh, it uh, this issue is it's a difficult issue. Let me put that first. That it's a very difficult issue because of the moral implications, et cetera, et cetera. But where my mind has gone in this entire debate is people, government wants so much to tell people what they can and cannot do. Right. Why is that the role of government? And at the same time, those who say, oh, you can't make me wear a mask and you can't make me get an inoculation are the very people saying you can't get an abortion. Yeah, yeah. Ironic, isn't it? Inconsistency in the way that people view life drives me bananas. Well, our uh, our producer, uh, Ray, made a point uh, just before the show started. Uh, she, she cited a, a Reuters article Uh, saying to uh, Justice Alito, the scope of the 14th Amendment or 14th Amendment rights must be considered in the context of the times in which it was devised. And then she says, but then why does that not apply to the Second Amendment? Arms in 1790 were muzzle-loading flintlocks, not automatic rifles. This inconsistency, let me put it this way, we have a consistent inconsistency in issues like this. To the point where the, the decisions in the end just don't make any sense. No, they don't. And it actually makes me worry about the way that we, we are governed and the way that we govern. This concept about the Second Amendment thing. And understand, in the Supreme Court, you have the conservatives who basically hearken to original intent. And you have the liberals who say you need to view the Constitution in the light of the times. And I mm-hmm. fall into that second category. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you think about original intent, we need to think about what was going on back when the various uh, provisions were drafted. The original Constitution was drafted in around 1790. Does that mean in 10,000 years, when we're talking about a, a constitutional issue, we have to worry about what people 10,000 years ago thought? Come on. Right. What does it matter? You have to view life in the context of the times in which you live. Absolutely right. I, I got to ask you about these Southern governors, too. I, I normally just sort of have the uh, the Sunday morning talk shows going on in the background. I was glued to them yesterday. Uh, Southern government governors made it clear that they are not going to stop with a win on Roe v. Wade. They want to make their states abortion proof. And they're willing to criminalize behavior that would help a woman end a pregnancy even out of state. Right. We already know what Texas has done, for example, where even if a woman goes out of state for an abortion, um, uninterested parties in Texas can can sue the, the doctor 
that helped her get that abortion. It's, I mean, it's, it just boggles the mind. Um, Mississippi and Arkansas yesterday uh, had their governors on these shows. They were talking about banning contraceptives. I mean, we haven't even talked about that since the 60s. And here we are again. So first, from a policy perspective, where do you think this goes? Is this what voters want in these states? You know, let's say they get their abortion ban. So next is out-of-state abortions. Next is banning contraceptives. What, what are we looking at here? Well, I, I think the banning out-of-state abortions is probably where they're clearly going to go. Because uh-huh. the concept is that they're trying to protect the the fetus, then, well, gee, if you can cross the border and go get the abortion, what what good is my law here doing? I need to make my law more in, uh, inclusive. But this business about banning contraception, <laughs> you know, you know what's next after that, John? Huh. Banning mas- male masturbation. Yeah, right. Right. Menstruation. That's that's right out of uh, what was that? What was that movie with Reese Witherspoon where she went to Harvard? Uh, something blonde. Legally Blonde. Legally Blonde. Legally Blonde had a bit about stopping men from masturbating. Yes. Huh. Yeah. All right. It was the first question that she answered in her law school class. Yeah, that's that's where we're headed. Frankly, it should be illegal for a woman not to be pregnant. <laughs> right. Um, if she has her menstrual cycle, that's a potential human being. Right. Wow. Just went into the toilet. Where where does it end? I mean, if they're not happy with just overturning Roe v. Wade, there's no telling where they want it to end. Well, I think we could sketch out some lines. I think <laughs> I would say, you know, I. It, it, Putting uh, criminal penalties on mailing uh, the abortion yeah. pills in, right. in Tennessee, attempting to imply that. I mean, I think I think that is definitely uh, I think that is a real possibility. Oh, and yes. Other other measures like that. Uh, restrictions to contraception. Sure. Or even are we d- going to see the governor of Tennessee tell men to keep their hands on their pants? Right. Absolutely not. No, we no. know that's not going to happen. But, but are we going to see, for example, travel restrictions where you're not allowed to leave the state for the purpose of, of seeking an abortion? I mean, we talked about the uh, really sinister data collection that mm-hmm. could facilitate, you know, right. not an outright ban, but perhaps uh, the the use of police to track mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. who might have just been to a Planned Parenthood or, or something and now are on their yeah. way out of state to look at license plates. I mean, this is a pretty um, dystopian vision of the future, but yeah, I mean, it we, really is. we also thought that Roe v. Wade was settled law too. You know, it's funny. You're going to, you're going to end up with, you know how when you cross a state line, there's always a fireworks uh, store there because you, you can't, if you live in that state, oh you can't God. buy fireworks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're going to have abortion clinics. And liquor stores and fireworks stores right on state lines. I mean, this is a discussion on NPR this morning that clinics in um, Illinois, because they border states that are that have trigger laws or mm-hmm. preparing to enact uh, abortion restrictions. Illinois does not have any such laws uh, right. on its, you know, in the state. And they are preparing for an influx of, well, of people. We mentioned when Kevin Gastala was on the show a couple of weeks ago that um that Southern Illinois is actually closer to Mississippi than it is to the city of Chicago. Hmm. Yeah. Wild. Like physically. Uh, Brian. Uh, but just, just quickly. Yeah, go right ahead. Restricting women from, from going into other states to get abortions. The next step after that is not allowing pregnant women to travel at all. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
Right. This is, this is the totalitarian state that uh, some of these southern governors want. But they want it totalitarian in only a certain way. Yes. In other ways, they don't want it. So, again, this inconsistency and the idiocy of politicians. And this all seems to be a gift politically to the Democrats. We have a crappy economy, high inflation. Joe Biden seems like a confused, doddering old man half the time. And this gift of a political issue just lands right in his lap. The Republicans this year are all about the economy and law and order, right? They've been consistent in their talking points. And the Democrats are all about abortion. What do, what do you think people care about more? Well, I think that the, certainly the diehard far right is just ties right into this abortion thing. So they're, they're, they're not going to have a problem with it. The question is the swing voters. And it's difficult to tell. Because this the issue affects women much more than than men. So the question is, are women going to swing to the borderline women? Are they going to swing swing to the Democrats? Does the abortion issue affect enough of them that they're going to worry about that as opposed to more you know, the economy or the doddering old fool? See, I think that's it. I think that's that. What Brian just said is the key. I don't remember what year it was that became known as the year of the soccer mom. It was like 92 or 96 or something like that, where where women came out and voted strongly Democratic. And those votes were not were not reflected in pre-election polls. And they said that the pollsters just missed issues that were important to suburban women. And they came out in force and proved that they were they were a political force to be reckoned with. I wonder if this is going to be one of those years where the Republicans are are talking about the economy, because remember, it's the economy, stupid. Right. And they're talking about law and order. We've talked on the show about how crime is up. People are upset. Uh, you know, they're angry at some of these big state uh, district attorneys. But I wonder if that's not it. Maybe it is abortion. And and I wonder if women are going to go into the the uh, voting booth and say, you know what? I'm upset that the economy stinks. I'm upset that crime is up. But this abortion thing is an assault on my civil liberties. And even though I don't vote Democrat normally, I'm going to vote Democrat today. I wonder if people are going to be having that conversation with themselves. What do you think, Brian? Um. You know, you talk about the economy, and it, it's, it's, in my view, difficult to pinpoint where, the origin of the problems with the economy, because in my mind, they lag. They lag policy. So is, is the inflation going on? Is it because of the Democrats? I'm, I don't really know. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. To blame a party, but of course, the, the, the party is going to point fingers at the other party and say, you're to blame for all the bad stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's the nature of our system. Mitch McConnell said on Saturday, and I sent this to everybody I know, uh, he said that the Republicans may try to ban abortion statutorily at the national level after the Supreme Court decision comes out. He said uh, that they could certainly try Although several other Republicans like Mitt Romney, for example, said that, no, that's not on their agenda, that as a conference, they haven't discussed this in, in the Senate among Republicans. Are we seeing the beginning of the fight on abortion rather than the end of it? Do you think the Republicans, if they retake the White House and the Congress, 
that they might actually, you know, launch a war on on women's rights nationally? Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. I remember in uh, my political stance has always been independent, always don't adhere to a party, look at the policies and what the candidate is saying and vote according to that. And in my in my youth, I was kind of leaning. I had a tendency to vote Republican because I am a small government, uh, control the budget type person. Well, the Republicans have abandoned that long ago. But I remember 1980 was the first year that abortion was in the Republican platform. You're right. That was the Reagan platform. Yes. Yes, it was. And it was done for the purpose of marketing that they wanted to market that stance to their base and say, look at us, we are for prenatal rights, blah, 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 blah. You know, everything politicians do is to get reelected, determine what can I say, what group can I bring in that's going to support the thing that I'm going to say. So, and this is why I hate political parties. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm a proud independent we we need viable third parties and frankly we need viable third and fourth parties like most functioning democracies have and we need to get rid of the winner take all uh, approach to the electoral college that yeah. states follow yeah we do the electoral college is a federal uh, it's in the constitution mm-hmm. the administration of it is local that's right how does that how does that make any sense yeah, it makes no sense. And, you know, even though the Electoral College is is constitutionally mandated, the actual members of the Electoral College, the actual electors, are not compelled by law to cast their vote for the candidate that won their state. And so almost every election, um, you know, let's say a, a winning president gets 400 electoral votes. He'll really end up with like 399 or 398 because there are going to be one or two wackos who cast a vote for somebody else. I remember a woman in and I think it was Mississippi that ended up casting a vote for George Wallace, for example. Uh, even though Wallace had not just lost Mississippi, he had come in third. I think this was in 76. I was a kid at the time. Um, but this happens all the time. And it's because the system is so screwed up. The, the, the law that we have that governs it is so screwed up that there's just no guarantee. You know, we can have, screwed up. We, we can have a, a, a group of, what is it, 535 people just decide that, no, they don't care who the millions upon millions of Americans voted for. They're going to pick somebody else. They actually have the legal right to do that. I will tell you an even more fundamental problem. You can win the presidency and win the Electoral College with 23% of the popular vote. Yes, and I'll go one farther. You can win the presidency and the Electoral College by winning only 17 states. Yep. Yeah, not good. Not good for democracy. No, and I and I go back. My my feeling is, what difference does it make where you live? Yeah, we count land more than we count people when you're yep. talking about the electoral college. Yep, you're right. Hey, let's talk for a minute about the Bank of England's uh, statement over the weekend on inflation. The statement said that the only way to tame inflation uh, is with a recession. 
And whether we want a recession or not, our capitalist economy is cyclical. And so recessions happen. Uh, we may be headed into a recession right now anyway, because the economy shrunk in the first quarter of the year. If it shrinks for a second consecutive quarter, that's the definition of a recession. Do you agree that a recession, though, is the only way to tame inflation? Well, certainly the tradition has been to raise interest rates mm -hmm. in times of inflation so that cost of doing business is greater. And it, the concept is that it'll tamp down price increases. So it's difficult. And, and we use these words and we make these definitions. The, the contracting economy for two quarters is a re recession. Well, okay. Again, I, so what? Uh, it, it, this idea that more, 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 it always has to be, it has to grow, it has to grow, it has to grow. Why? It's, why isn't the same good enough? Yeah, right. We, we create these artificial constructs, and then we create problems around these artificial constructs. So uh, I don't know if it's the only way. I mean, the idea is that you need to bring down the rate of price increase and I don't know if if economic constriction is necessary for that or not. But if it's a result of it, so what? Which is the bigger problem? Yeah. I, uh, we, the, the thing I go back to is we used to talk about the savings rate back. Uh, oh, sure. I remember Jimmy Carter talking about the savings rate, that it wasn't high enough and that people needed to uh, to save more. And then he reversed that, what, a year later and said, no, no, we're saving too much. Uh, it, the economy is not growing because people aren't spending money. And then he wanted us to go out and spend more. That's, and that's also why Donald Trump, when he wasn't president, was lambasting Obama for the low interest rates. Right. And the moment he became president, oh, no, you can't raise interest rates. <laughs> Hey, I want to ask you about the IRS. It turns out that the IRS is so backlogged that millions of Americans have not yet received their income tax refunds. In fact, 35 million people are still waiting for their 2021 refunds. But the problem is so bad that there are more than a million people who are still waiting for their 2020 refunds. And now the IRS for the first time that I've ever heard of, although I haven't researched it, uh, the IRS is having to pay interest to taxpayers for holding their money all this time. What's the problem at the IRS? This is this is all supposed to be done by computer. So what's taking so long? Well, you used the wrong word. You, you said backlogged. <laughs> Should be using backward. <laughs> right, right. And, and you're making an assumption about computers. Because the IRS apparently is way behind on technology, and the paper uh, tax returns are processed by hand. Oh, my God. They are taken. The paper tax return is taken, and the data is input onto the computer by hand. Oh, my goodness. I, I didn't know that. That is where the backlog is created. It is, and they don't even scan. Apparently, this issue about scanning was brought to the IRS a number of years ago, 
And many states have implemented scanning of the written uh, tax returns. Right. That has not yet been implemented in the federal government. Oh, my. And this goes to one of my pet peeves. Uh, and I have sometimes conflicting thoughts in my head. But my pet peeve about the government is it has no incentive to be efficient and, in fact, is not efficient. If you, if you want something done, it isn't the government to do it. Right. They are not incentivized the way that private business. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Money is always available. In fact, one of the big problems with government is that an agency wants to spend all of its budget, irrespective of whether it needs to spend it. Mm-hmm. Because it's afraid if it doesn't spend all of its budget, next year its budget will be reduced. Yes. What kind of incentive is that? Yeah, seriously. Zero incentive. That's exactly how government runs, though. I can't tell you how many end of the fiscal year parties we used to have at the CIA where we would just do whatever we could to uh, to spend the budget. Um, have everybody fly business class for the rest of the year. Or, you know, spend $2,000 on alcohol or, you know, a new copy machine, even though the one that you have is only two years old. You have to spend the money or they're going to take it out of your budget for next year. Happens every year. Hey, let me ask you also, you're from California and I can't, I can't end this without asking you about that state. California is experiencing an unprecedented outflow of residents. It lost one of its 53 congressional seats in the last census, and people are continuing to move out. The, the L.A. Times last week said that um, the, the rate of people departing the state has actually increased since the 2020 census. Water shortages, homelessness, high taxes, um, high cost of fuel, uh, increases in crime are all uh, cited as as reasons for people leaving. I have a lot of friends who live in and relatives who live in Southern California, and they all say the same thing that, yeah, the weather's great and everything else has come to suck. And so they're leaving. Um, With that said, the Democrats remain solidly in control uh, of state government. Governor Gavin Newsom is more popular than ever. So what's the problem and what has to be done to turn this around or should it be turned around? Uh, That is an extremely difficult question. And let me tell you, I myself have thought about leaving, Mm -hmm. but you left out one of the primary drivers in my mind, and that is the cost of housing. Oh, of course. In fact, just last week, the L.A. Times had a front page article saying for the first time ever, the median home price in Orange County crossed a million dollars. The median. The San Fernando Valley, to a large degree, was constructed with what at the time was affordable homes. They're very modest if you drive through the streets. They're very modest. And the median price is seven hundred and fifty thousand to eight hundred thousand. These are affordable homes. Quote, you know, back in the day, yeah, were affordable homes. It's just berserk what has happened out here. And the idea, especially as we have moved with the pandemic 
to work from home environments. And Airbnb has said, we are going to maintain that forever. We're never going to go back to the office thing. Right. It's in our company. Apparently, they've had 800,000 views to their website since then. Wow. But uh, it's allowed people to take that million-plus-dollar home in Orange County, convert it into a $250,000 home in Texas, mm-hmm. pocket $750,000. So I think that, to a degree, is an impetus to people to say, why am I sitting out here? Mm-hmm. I'm trading the weather for lifestyle Yes, somewhere else. Yeah, absolutely true. Uh, yes. California is, uh, is a hugely democratic state. Uh, I'm not sure why, other than uh, maybe there's a lot of immigrants and the immigrants look kindly. Can I ask something about California? Sorry, I want to interrupt. I I walked through California. Yeah, literally. And the impression that I got is that on the national stage, yeah, California is a reliably blue state, a very democratic state, but that basically that comes from L.A. and San Francisco and the rest of the state, or at least, you know, a a huge part of this enormous state is actually uh, pretty conservative. And and that was, you know, that was surprising to me. That was interesting to me. It's sort of interesting how uh, a, a state can be sort of represented only by its two uh, biggest cities or most sort of concentrated Democratic cities. So I wanted to I wanted to ask about that because it wasn't, you know, maybe uh, maybe suburban California isn't quite the same as rural California. But the impression well, that I got was of, a, of us... a, actually overwhelmingly yeah. um, conservative state with a couple of uh, big blue dots big enough to sway it. Devin Nunez is uh, is from California. Kevin McCarthy's from California. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of conservatives there. Yeah. But if you look at the makeup of the state government mm-hmm. of the state uh, Senate, et cetera, et cetera, it's also heavily Democrat. So maybe when you carve out the districts, maybe maybe the, the districts are concentrated in the two heavily populated areas. I guess kind of makes sense if you're trying to allocate them somewhat evenly with respect to the number of people in each district. But uh, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. But when you have a lot of people, you have a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So, so what what do you do? Yeah, yeah. Well, we are going to have to leave it there as we're out of time. Thank you for joining us, Brian Wright. Brian is an attorney and former radio host in Southern California. You're listening to Political Misfits. We'll take one more short break and be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with John Kiriakou, and we wanted to take a minute to talk about some political developments in Ethiopia, as well as warnings of possible famine across much of the Horn of Africa. 
Drought and pandemic fallout is getting a, a lot of the blame for the political and also the humanitarian situation there. But I think there are also uh, some more long-term international factors to explore when you are looking at the the hardship there that people are facing. We're joined for this conversation by Abayome Izikiwe. He's the editor of Pan American Newswire. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. And it's Pan African Newswire. Oh, Pan African. What did I say? Pan Ethiopian? I'm lo- sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm looking. Oh, yeah. I'm looking at Pan African Newswire and there's the wrong word came out of my mouth. Sorry <laughs> about that. So l- let's get into uh, more words that I've written that I can probably say correctly. After getting a few months of, of sustained attention during the Tigray War at the end of last year, uh, it seems like Ethiopia and the Horn of Africa in general have sort of drifted out of the spotlight. But the timing seems very bad as the region is facing mass hunger. The worst drought in 40 years could cause food insecurity for 20 million people, including 10 million children. This is all coming from different U.N. agencies. Forty percent of the population of Somalia is facing extreme food insecurity. This is, again, according to the U.N. And while we have seen some headlines speaking generally about food supplies being disrupted and sort of general fretting about the world's poorer countries suffering as a result of pandemic and war, uh, the crisis doesn't seem to be getting the, the press that it deserves. And so I, I want to talk about the factors behind the crisis in the minute, but I would like to first get your sense of the state of things and how serious the humanitarian crises already underway in uh, Ethiopia, Kenya, Somalia, and Djibouti, which are the countries that the UN focuses on. How serious is that right now? Well, um, first of all, thank you for having me on, and uh, I'm glad uh, that your program is taking up this issue uh, because the humanitarian crisis uh, in the Horn of Africa is worsening, and all we're hearing now in the Western media is the humanitarian situation in Ukraine, Mm -hmm. and they're placing uh, Ukraine ahead of Africa, ahead of Haiti, uh, Central America, uh, and other countries that are facing uh, serious, serious uh, food deficits and economic crises. Mm -hmm. Up to uh, 20 million people, it has been estimated uh, by the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, are facing uh, potential hunger and even starvation. And this has a lot to do with several factors, one of which is the impact of climate change uh, in East Africa. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've seen this uh, over the last few years, but it has worsened. Uh, There's estimates that this is the worst uh, drought uh, that the region has seen anywhere between 20 up to 60 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the situation is becoming more critical uh, in uh, the Horn of Africa and the East Africa region in general. And there's just not the focus on this issue uh, in the either the corporate media, the government-controlled media uh, in the United States. So it's very important that we focus some attention on this crisis. I also think, since you bring up climate change, you know, I think there is a sense to treat you know, uh, say acts of God, weather systems as things that, you know, well, nothing can be done about that. You can only respond to it. But when we talk about climate change and also when we talk about the impacts of climate change being visited on Africa in general, you know, you are talking about something that has human fingerprints all over it and has, you know, repercussions of, of actions undertaken by the West being visited on people who really made uh, almost no contribution to the problem at all. And I think that is a really 
useful lens to look at this through, right? It, it is, I think there can be a tendency to go, oh gosh, look at that, look at that disaster in that disaster prone area. Okay. And then, and turn your attention to something else. But in, in some sense, you know, you, you could call this a, a political decision, or at least you could call our, our current, you know, our actions for the last 10 years, political decisions. So I wanted to ask you about, you know, climate change as a lens to, to look through and to understand, you know, the, the West's treatment of Africa. And, you know, we're talking about the Horn of Africa in general here. Well, one of the uh, major contributors uh, to climate change has been uh, the United States, in particular, uh, the United States Defense Department, uh, the Pentagon. There have been studies uh, done on this, uh, the burning of uh, fossil fuels, uh, the massive uh, use of petroleum products uh, by the Department of Defense, and the ever-increasing uh, military budget uh, here in the United States was working, and poor people have to uh, subsidize. The conflict in Ukraine is a good illustration of how this operates. Uh, we've seen billions of dollars already over the table uh, that have been uh, sent to Ukraine, and then at the same time, uh, the president and the Congress last week said they want to send another $33 billion uh, to continue the war in Ukraine. And what is happening as well as a result of the sanctions against Russia uh, and the conflict uh, in Ukraine, uh, Russia, of course, and Ukraine are major exporters of agricultural products as well as agricultural inputs, uh, which uh, have a tremendous role to play uh, in Asia as well as in Africa. So the lack of uh, food imports, uh, the burgeoning problem of climate change and drought and so-called natural disasters are contributing uh, to this situation. And the fact that it's not even being discussed in the media is more of a crime uh, overall. So I think that uh, the situation uh, in Somalia, for example, uh, where the United States has intervened in its internal affairs going all the way back to the late 1970s, if we want to begin there, all the way up to the present. Uh, even today, uh, the NATO countries, uh, the United States Africa Command is funding uh, the African Union mission to Somalia. And this is not bringing about any type of diplomatic or political settlement to the conflict in Somalia. We know in Ethiopia what happened in November of 2020, where the United States has been backing the Tigray People's Liberation Front uh, to try to destabilize the government there. And they've tried as well to stop uh, the full operation of the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam Project. Djibouti uh, is a source of U.S. military occupation. There are thousands of U.S. African troops that are in Djibouti along with France. Uh, so all of these uh, variables are contributing uh, to the crisis. The lack of a focus on climate change, uh, the incapacity of the United Nations and other humanitarian organizations to provide uh, food, uh, water, and other resources, and then at the same time, the continuing uh, interference in the internal affairs uh, of these countries in that region. This is a very critical and strategically important region. Uh, it is on the Indian Ocean, it is on the Red Sea, it is right across uh, from the Arabian Peninsula and other strategic uh, geopolitical regions and trade routes in East Africa and West Asia. So people in the United States should be concerned about what is going on in this region. But unfortunately, uh, the priorities 
on other areas. Mm-hmm. It does really show you the the fickleness of Western press, the, the you know, yeah. speed with which Ethiopia dropped out of the oh, of yeah. the news, because, of course, that conflict is not resolved. I wonder Mm-mm. if you could talk to us a little bit about the, the state of the war in Ethiopia and the state of any political resolution, you know, where, where peace processes stand, who's supporting them. Uh, what What is the situation of most of the population there right now? Well, over successive uh, administrations, uh, we've had support on the part of the United States government for the Tigray People's Liberation Front. Uh, In 1991, under George Bush Sr., uh, Herman Cohen, who was the Undersecretary of State for African Affairs, engineered uh, the ascendancy uh, to take state power by the TPLF, which was also known as the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front. Uh, They stayed in power. Uh, for many years, all the way up until uh, 2018. Uh, they were overthrown uh, as a result of a mass rebellion. Uh, the current Prime Minister, Ahmed Abi, uh, has been in office for the last four years. Uh, he has normalized uh, relations with Eritrea, uh, signed uh, two peace agreements with Eritrea. He has amended uh, uh, divisions in the Ethiopian Orthodox Christian Church. He has tried to establish a political party to bring together all the different regions and ethnic groups in Ethiopia. Uh, yet uh, the Trump administration and now the Biden administration is taking out uh, sanctions. Uh, they have banned uh, uh, Ethiopia from the Africa Growth and Opportunity Act uh, legislation uh, that was set up uh, way back in uh, 2020. So this is not helping the situation at all by politicizing uh, the overall conflict uh, in Ethiopia, and at the same time taking sides uh, with the opposition, uh, which is only worsening the food crisis uh, that has uh, come come about as a result of the conflict as well as climate change. So this definitely uh, is an issue uh, that progressive forces, uh, people in the humanitarian uh, community should take up, and they should put this issue back on the top of the agenda in the United States as well as Europe. I wonder what you make of the divide between Western powers and the global South when it comes to Ukraine and this united stand that the U.S. would like to organize against Russia. Because I I wonder if you think it has the potential to be a political turning point. This came to my mind because uh, a story in Responsible Statecraft from um, the last couple of days noted the the visits by a number of heads of state in the Horn of Africa uh, to Moscow and, and connections with Russia. And I do think it it has been interesting to watch countries like India say, look, we don't have to do what you ask us to. We're going to pursue our own policy. We don't have to suffer economically and our people don't have to suffer economically to please you and to please this war that that we don't want any part in. And so I wonder if... um, you know, I, I think I am not sure that necessarily any of these countries we're talking about have taken such an overt stand as India has or have gotten as much press. But I wonder if, you know, this has the potential to be a political turning point where the global South says we've had we've had enough. We don't we don't want to suffer as the result of sanctions that are going to benefit you. Yes, we've seen this uh, for many years, well over 60 years with the uh, formation of the Bandung uh, Conference in 1955 in Indonesia. Then there was the Non-Aligned Group uh, that was formed in 1961. These are just indications uh, during the post-colonial period of the need uh, to have the majority of the world's population speak as a bloc, you know, against uh, potential 
uh, conventional war and even thermonuclear war uh, between the United States uh, and Russia. India is an excellent example of this trend. Even though the government in India now is a Hindu uh, government that uh, tends to favor uh, the Hindu population, uh, they have uh, taken a position that they're going to continue to trade with the Russian Federation. Uh, they've also wanted to maintain uh, good relations with the United States and uh, particularly um, the existing administration. And it's very little uh, that this administration under Joe Biden can do about that. They do not want to uh, lose India in regard to uh, it being a trading partner and also to create even a more hostile environment between India and the United States, as well as uh, India and uh, the United Kingdom, which is the former uh, colonial power. We see this in other countries in Africa, uh, for example. Uh, many of the countries in Africa during the two efforts to condemn uh, Russia within the United Nations uh, General Assembly, uh, half of those countries abstain. Eritrea, which is in the Horn of Africa, voted against the initial resolution to condemn uh, Russia. Uh, so, and at the same time, even though the governments, some governments have spoken out in support of the U.S. position, um, Kenya had initially and Ghana, uh, but the people in those countries are not joining in with the governments. Uh, you see uh, in countries like Mali, Central African Republic, and even, even Ethiopia, uh, during the uh, uh, celebration over the victory uh, in the Battle of Adwa of 1896, where the first attempt by Italy to colonize Ethiopia, uh, people were flying Ethiopian flags, and some were flying Russian flags as well. So this is a dilemma for the United States. Mali Fee, uh, who is the uh, U.S. Uh, Undersecretary for African Affairs, uh, had a briefing uh, with African journalists from across the continent, and they asked her very critical questions about U.S. foreign policy, the contradictions, uh, for example, uh, demanding uh, that the African countries condemn Russia same time, uh, not demanding that they condemn uh, Israel for its role in Palestine and other countries in West Asia. So this is a clear contradiction, and I don't think the United States is going to get the type of support that it wants. Uh, even in Europe, uh, we see that Germany, for example, uh, which is remilitarizing at the aegis of the United States, still has to import Russian natural gas and oil. Uh, they're dependent uh, for 50% of their natural gas uh, from the Russian Federation. Other countries, smaller countries in Eastern Europe, are almost exclusively dependent upon Russia uh, for natural gas and oil. So this is going to be a very, very difficult situation for the United States to manage. On the one hand, uh, these countries, uh, which are a part of NATO or sympathetic to NATO, uh, have to follow the U.S. line. But at the same time, uh, if they do ban uh, for example, Russian natural gas and Russian oil, their countries will be plunged into a almost unprecedented recession. And is the United States uh, in a position to support these countries once the economies begin to decline? Because we see uh, what is happening here in this country. Uh, every measure that is taken uh, by the Federal Reserve, uh, by uh, the U.S. Department of Commerce. It's just creating a deeper crisis. We saw what happened last week mm -hmm. uh, with uh, the Fed Chairman Powell uh, raising interest rates. Then at the same time, uh, uh, the stock market has plunged over the last three days. So they're in a quagmire right now trying to manage a war 
over the expansion of NATO in Eastern Europe, and at the same time trying to manage the economic crisis that exists in the United States and other Western European states. Yeah, I mean, I think the answer is it's certainly the U.S. is going to be in no position to uh, support other countries that it, you know, indirectly sends into recession through enforcing these sanctions. But also, I think, you know, as significantly, it rarely shows any appetite to, to do that, which sort of brings me back to the the topic of climate change that we started this conversation with. You know, I, I wonder... Um, you know, I mean, I, I want to ask what what you think Western nations, what you think the U.N. should be doing right now to to alleviate this suffering and prevent it from getting worse. But I also want to ask, you know, when we look at um, a, 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 the worst drought in, in 40 years and attribute that to climate change, what do the, the Western countries that have contributed exponentially more to this problem than than any African nation, what do they owe the countries that are going to suffer as a result, right? What, what kind of what, what kind of financial support should we be talking about? What kind of political support should we be talking about? And then also, you know, what what do we owe countries that suffer as a result of our um, e- economic decisions? What what kind of a reparations package or support package should we be talking about? Yeah, I would say the United States government and the United States uh, economic system owes a tremendous amount of resources. Uh, to the developing states. Uh, They are not responsible uh, for the climate crisis. Uh, If you look at uh, the proceedings of the COP26 summit in Glasgow, Scotland, uh, late last year, uh, the United States was there. Uh, It was involved in all the discussions uh, that took place there. Uh, They vetoed uh, language that would have curtailed uh, the emissions of greenhouse gases and other uh, harmful um, Uh, products that are damaging the atmosphere, Uh, yet uh, at the same time, uh, they dictate to these countries uh, what their political positions should be on various uh, international issues. They do owe a considerable amount of resources uh, to the developing states. Climate change is a major factor uh, in this this reparations framework. But at the same time, we still have uh, the ongoing economic exploitation of Africa, uh, where the control of uh, commodity prices are still uh, in the hands of Western Europe and uh, the capitalist economies in North America. So this is something that people inside the United States uh, could advocate for. Uh, They could advocate uh, for a change in environmental policy, and they could also advocate for the payment of reparations uh, to oppressed peoples in the United States as well as uh, throughout the international community. That was Abayomi Uzikiwe. He's editor of the Pan-African Newswire. Uh, Would you like to tell our listeners where they can go to find more of your work? Yeah, they can uh, go to our blog at panafricannews.blogspot.com. I'm also uh, on Facebook um, as Abayomi Uzikiwe, on Twitter at uh, PanAfNews, and also on Instagram. Uh, So, yes, uh, you can find our work uh, in various uh, platforms uh, throughout uh, the world. All over the Internet. Okay, thanks so much for joining us. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou here with Michelle Witte. There are a couple of stories that we wanted our listeners to uh, to hear about before we, we wrap up the show. One of them uh, was in the New York Post, which for whatever reason is the only newspaper in America that covers this issue. This is the issue of Hunter Biden. Let me tell you what this story did for me. <laughs> Introduce me to the term sugar brother. Yeah. Which I've never I've encountered never seen before. It before. Nope. Today was the very first time. Mm-hmm. It turns out that Hunter Biden, the president's son, has what the New York Post is calling a sugar brother, like a sugar mama mm-hmm. or a sugar daddy. Uh, Hunter Biden owned or owed, excuse me, $2 million in taxes. Now imagine what his income had to be to owe $2 million in taxes. And he couldn't pay $2 million in taxes. But he's got a buddy in L.A. who is an attorney. And he just gave him the $2 million and had him pay his taxes with it. Uh, Now, I guess Hunter Biden gave him some of his artworks, which uh, the Los Angeles Times says are are worthless. Uh, They weren't bad. I saw pictures of them. I mean, not worthless. I don't know. I don't know if we ever saw how much people did actually end up paying for them, but they were estimated to one was going to go for like five hundred yeah. five hundred thousand dollars. They right. were going to. Yeah. Right. Artistically, perhaps worthless. But right. I think in terms of currency, maybe not. Apparently, they're good enough to to act as uh, as a uh, backup to two million dollar loan slash gift. Yeah. But uh, it's he just goes deeper and deeper and deeper all the time. And I. I can't help but to think if the Republicans win the House, we're going to we're going to be inundated with investigations of Hunter Biden. Yeah. If the Republicans win the White House, uh, it's just going to get worse. No, it's going to be Hunter Biden. it's going to be very depressing. Hey, also really depressing. I, I, can I just say that? Oh, did I t- did I talk about the Daily Caller and their uh, tweets? N- no, you mentioned it. You mentioned that you wanted to talk listen, about it. Cons- conservative rag Daily Caller has already twice this month shared videos of explosions in Ukraine on its social media. I saw I saw two on Twitter uh, with enticements that include the phrase war porn. Oh, check out this hit on whatever position. It's pure war porn. That's just gross. People That's really it, as a news organization to be sharing videos of explosions in which, you know, probably people died, certainly in a conflict where people are dying mm-hmm. every day and saying, hey, get a load of this war porn. Come have fun watching it. Yeah, that, that's inexcusable. You really ought to be ashamed of yourself. Uh, do you want some more Twitter news? Yeah, I'd love this it. This tickled me. Uh, uh, let me say let me say two words to you. Lisa Ann. Do you know who Lisa Ann is? No. I think I can say the phrase Nailin' Palin. Does that ring any bells? Lisa Ann is a, an adult film star. Oh, my God. Known for uh, pretending to be Sarah Palin in a oh series of, of adult films. She was very popular. Oh, I never uh, heard around this like before. 2015, she was like number one in, uh, in searches, uh, certainly oh in, in North America. So she's very famous. She's the seventh grade teacher everybody wanted but didn't necessarily have. Anyway, she, uh, oh not that gosh. she is a seventh grade teacher. She has come out and said that if Elon Musk does by Twitter, she will be advocating for him to stop the proliferation of pornography on Twitter. Not because she is anti-porn, but because there's no age restriction to using Twitter and she doesn't think you should be able to just have like full-on full-on sex scenes yeah. floating around a social media app that anyone of any age can can log into and use. So yeah, so she's come out 
and said, uh, this is not, she's not turning her back on her prior self or her prior uh, employment, merely that she's, she's evolving and she would like to see social media, uh, social media entities take more action to protect children. So we can trust her with our children then. Well, she, you know. Just because someone has sex for money doesn't mean they want your children to see it. And so, yeah, you probably can. Probably more than Elon Musk, who, you know, wanted to put a bunch of Thai school kids into his weird prototype submarines. I remember that. I remember that. You know, he also said that one of the first things he's going to do once he takes over Twitter is he's going to ban bots, which I thought was interesting. Hmm. Yeah. I wonder what that's going to do to Twitter. Did you, by the way, get a load of uh, Donald Trump's Happy Mother's Day message? No. Thank goodness. Happy Mother's Day to all, including racist, vicious, highly partisan, politically motivated and very unfair radical left Democrat judges, prosecutors, district attorneys and attorney general who campaign unrelentingly against you without knowing a thing and endlessly promise to take you down. (laughs) Happy birthday. Uh, Sorry. Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) Pretty great. Um, That was pretty funny. (laughs) I mean, you know, it's uh, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing that he was he was president. But it is good comedy. Yeah. Yeah. And then he has the nerve to criticize Madison Cawthorn. Yeah. Right. I mean, (laughs) Madison Cawthorn. Honestly, anything Madison Cawthorn has done is probably not as embarrassing as that. But again, not as funny. Not as funny. Not as funny. Probably not as funny for his cousin, who's the the victim in that uh, in that video. That video. So uh, also a little update from Afghanistan. But it looks like Afghanistan, the Afghan government, the Taliban government yeah. um, is really, you know, probably predictably continuing to crack down on uh, on women's movements and how they are allowed to look outside. On Saturday, it issued a new dress code for women appearing in public and said only a woman's eyes should be visible. Yes. Uh, which is a terrible way to live, in my opinion, if it's forced upon you. you that's know, what you is, decide to do. This is something that I, I don't understand. We were in that country for 20 years. Mm-hmm. For 20 years, we tried to uh, we tried to train the Afghan military and the Afghan police. Uh, we couldn't break through the cultural problems. I mean, God knows we shouldn't have been there in the first place, right? right? We had no business occupying that and country. And how hard did we try? For, and, you know what I mean? And well, we had no business forcing our own mores and our own culture and our own form of government on them. Right. No business at all. Right. But Afghans have told me over the years that um, that it's their country, it's their culture, uh, that the Taliban are their sons. And their brothers and fathers and cousins. And if the Taliban are leading the country, it's because the Afghan people want them to. I mean, I think it's probably it's ahistorical to think that Taliban is or sorry, that Afghanistan has no familiarity with secular government or with like freedoms for women or whatever. Certainly they did in the the 70s and 80s. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, yeah, certainly whatever we were trying there wasn't working. Yeah. Uh, but this is a sad development for for women Terrible. in Afghanistan, I think. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Sorry, should it should have done the Palin story last because that was a lot more fun. <laughs> we'll have more fun stuff for you tomorrow, but we're going to take off for today. Thanks to our guests and our producers and engineers here. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs>